Good morning, Disciples Church. Would you please remain standing for today's scripture reading? It comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. What a response. What a crowd. Well, it is good to see you and good to be with you. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege and my honor to get to open up the Word of God with you today. So if you're not already there, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, as we look at this text today, we're coming to the very end of the book of 1 Peter. I hope it's been an encouragement and a blessing to you. Um, it's, a, it's certainly been a challenge and a blessing to me. And one of the things that's interesting as you work your way through the book, in fact, one of the, one of the reasons that we do it and one of the blessings that we see when we work our way through the book is that when you come to passages like this text today, a text that is likely familiar to you if you've been in or around the church for some time, when you understand the background of what's happening in the book, you read it a little bit differently. You approach it a little bit differently. You see in it some things that you might not otherwise see. And, and this morning, as we think about this instruction specifically given to elders and by extension to the, to the church uh, more broadly, um, when you think about it in the context of suffering and persecution, you begin to read it a bit differently. I've had opportunity over the years to walk with a lot of people through some very, very hard things, to see people in all different stages of life, dealing with all different challenges and unique circumstances. And, and if we were to ask you or ask individuals, what is challenging about the hardships that you've endured, about the suffering that you've endured, the answers would probably be as varied as the circumstances themselves. They'd be different for every single person. They would look different, they'd feel different, but some of the answers that seem to pop up when people are going through the midst of those things are, are similar circumstance to circumstance. People talk about being scared. They talk about being unsure. They talk about being, being shaken, maybe, in their faith or in their personal life or in their emotions. Maybe they feel panicky or they feel anxiety or they feel worry. All of a sudden, sleepless nights begin to pop up where historically maybe they slept well. Relationships, relationships rather, begin to begin to crumble or begin to dissipate, but the one thing that nearly every hardship carries along with it is a feeling of isolation. There's something about suffering, there's something about hardships that makes us feel alone. That other people just don't know what it is we're walking through, they don't know what our experience is, they don't know what it's like to be us. And maybe that's true to some extent or another. Maybe there's no one in your exact circle who's walked through exactly the pain and suffering that you've walked through, and that just works to intensify that feeling. Hardship and suffering are often isolating. Some hardships isolate us physically. 
Some people have particular injuries. They're unable to get out of bed. They have weakened immune systems maybe, and so they can't be around other people. Sometimes those hardships are isolating because you're put in a position where you have to care for a loved one. You're unable to get out the way that you otherwise might like to. Some hardships are isolating emotionally. Some of you have had hard times in your marriage or maybe in a previous marriage where the relationship was beginning to sour or was falling apart to the point where you felt you had no one to talk about it with. In fact, and this is the unique irony of marital discord, the person in the world who you most ought to be able to talk to about the difficulties you're experiencing is the person you are least able to talk to. Uniquely isolating circumstances. Or maybe for you, things have been hard with your kids. Maybe when they're young, they're out of control and you feel like you can't take them out anywhere. You can't go to other people's houses. You can't go out to restaurants for fear of what other people are going to think or say about you. Or perhaps when they're older and they're going through a stage where they don't feel like they need you anymore or they discover or at least think they've discovered that you don't know anything. And all of a sudden there's a hostility in that interaction that didn't used to be there. For some hardships, they isolate us relationally. Perhaps you've lost friends or family members because of your insistence on holding to particular doctrinal truths or because there's some other sort of relational discord, or perhaps you've been touched by the death of a loved one and now realize how so many other relationships that you've had in your life have been informed or in some way dependent on that other person's presence. And as we've talked about through the course of this book, one of the beauties of Scripture is that it doesn't pretend that those hardships don't exist. In fact, it it deals with those hardships head on in the only reasonable way that we're able to deal with them. And the Christians to whom Peter is writing in this text have experienced all of that. From the mundane to the extraordinary, they knew hardships well. They've been abandoned by family and friends. They've been fired from jobs because of their faith. They've been ostracized from their social circles. They've been persecuted by governments and religious leaders. And the questions that they faced in this particular moment is a natural one. It's the same question that you and I will face if we haven't already, which is this. Is Jesus worth it? Is it actually worth it to believe in and follow this Christ? And Peter writes this letter to answer that question, to remind these people of who they are and what they've been brought into. And if you think about the book of 1 Peter holistically, what you begin to realize is that we have been given an identity, not only individually, but also collectively together as a body of believers. That began in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, where Peter said, as you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in this context, Peter reminds these suffering believers, these believers who are beginning to wonder if Jesus is worth it, to beginning to wonder if he's all he's cracked up to be, to beginning to to, to be in a position to begin to wonder if it was worth the hardships they were enduring. They now are in this moment where they're scattered and where they're feeling that hollow ache of isolation. And Peter's reminding them that they had not been left alone. 
He reminds them that they are part of a spiritual house, the dwelling place of God collectively, that the blood of the King of Kings is now coursing through their veins, and that He has made them family with other suffering exiles. He reminds them that the Spirit of God has rested upon them in chapter 4, verse 14. And now in this text this morning, he reminds these people that they have been brought into the church to care and to be cared for. And the instruction that Peter gives here is intended for the building up of that body, for the building up and the proper function of the local church, so that the believers who make up the church can begin to interact with one another in a way that was beneficial for them, both individually and collectively, so that they can begin to endure together in their isolation. And in the midst of the fiery trial that Peter describes in chapter 4. And all of that leads into verse 1, where he says this, so, referencing back to chapter 4, because of the hardships, because of the suffering, because of the persecutions that you'll experience, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, here's the instruction, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now remember that Peter ends chapter 4 by telling believers it is better to be mistreated for your faith. It's better to endure the hardships, the suffering, even the persecution that comes along with your faith than to abandon your faith and receive the approval of others. And in order to support you in that progression in your spiritual walk, God has gifted His people with the church. The church itself is intended to be a gift, and that's not always everyone's experience. Undoubtedly, there are people in this room where your experience with the church has not been a gift and it has not been a blessing. It's been an incredible hardship. You've seen and experienced the brokenness of humanity exemplified within the context of the local church. You've seen failures and you've seen disappointments and perhaps you've been mistreated, even abused within the context of the church. And so when you hear these words, all of it falls on hollow ears. How in the world is the church supposed to be a gift based on what my experience of the church has been? But what's being defined here for us is how the church is supposed to function. The calling that all of us as believers have been given and the opportunity we've been given to operate within the context of the church. This is the means by which Christians are to learn and to grow and to endure. It's the means by which we are to receive encouragement and training and support in our faith. So God, in His wisdom, has ordained this office of elder so that there can be men within the church who provide leadership and care for the congregation. People who equip for the work of the ministry. And the word that Peter uses here is the word presbyteros. It's one of several words that's translated in our Bibles as elder or overseer or pastor. By the way, at Disciples Church, we use those two words interchangeably. Elder and pastor refer to the same office. If you're a pastor, you're an elder and vice versa. Those words are interchangeable. But I want you to notice as an aside right off the bat that even the elder has not been left alone in this. His address here is an exhortation to the elders, plural. 
And some might look at this and argue, well, he's writing to scattered believers, so maybe he's just writing to an elder here or an elder there. But as you read the New Testament, if you're looking at it and just reading it, trying to remove your own predispositions from it, what you'll realize is that there's a lot of consistency in the way that the New Testament talks about these things. You'll be struck by at least two things. First, you'll be struck by the consistency with which plural leadership is communicated. The Bible refers to eldership nearly always in a plural context, shared responsibility. More than one person sharing the load, the responsibility to care for, to pastor, to oversee, to lead the church. The responsibility is given to a group of called and qualified men, not just one individual. And you can reference multiple other texts for that. We've preached whole sermons on that. Happy to talk about that at another time. But the second thing that you'll see is the consistent absence of hierarchical structures. And what I mean by that is that the only explicit hierarchy that you find for the church in the New Testament is elders at the local level as under shepherds of Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ listed as the chief shepherd. In fact, that's what he's referenced here in this text. So understand the natural implication of what that means for the local church. Elders, then, are not super-Christians. They're not perfect. You can just ask my wife. They are not perfect individuals. They're not scholars. They're not a special class of people. They're simply members of the church, primarily and first to be members of the church, who've been given a role and responsibility within that church. And notice what that first responsibility is. He says, shepherd. Now that's interesting because there's a host of words that Peter could have used to define the work that elders are called to do. But of all the words that we might expect or all the words that we might find other places in Scripture, the word he selects is shepherd. Now isn't that an interesting word? He doesn't say, I need elders to be CEOs of the church. He doesn't say, I need elders to be professors. I need elders to be motivational speakers to the church. And though there are certainly elements of instructing and speaking and managing that are involved in this role, the predominant theme that you see over and over and over again is shepherding. Shepherd the flock that is among you. See, eldership, biblically speaking, is not a lofty boardroom position, nor is it an authoritarian one. It is a lowly pastoral position. Elders are to be under-shepherds. And to lean into that analogy, what that means is that elders, pastors, are to be with the sheep to defend the sheep when they're attacked or drawn away, to care for the needs of the sheep, to bind up the sheep when they're injured or wounded, to pursue them when they wander, to correct them when they begin to stray into dangerous territory. And as someone quipped, the sign of a good shepherd is that they smell like the sheep, that they're with the sheep in the muck and the mire and the mess. In order to care for the sheep well, shepherds have to be able to get into the mess. In other words, pastors need to be with people. They need to love people. They need to shed tears with people. They need to serve people. They need to challenge people. They need to encourage people. And I can't tell you how often in conversations with pastors, I've heard pastors say things like this, well, I don't like people, but I really love being a pastor. And my answer is, no, you don't. 
I mean, you may love studying or you may love preaching or you may love planning or overseeing in the sense of managerial experience, but you actually don't love pastoring because the A1 responsibility of pastors is people. And you can't divorce a love of people from the role of a pastor. You're no longer a pastor. You're something else entirely. And notice then how these elders are called to shepherd the church because the description in this text is is vast, even even in its simplicity. He says this first, exercising oversight. And where shepherding has this very personal nature about it, that you're in with people, that you know them and you care for them and you love them and you walk with them and you encourage them. This sense of overseeing has a, a broader perspective. See, some of you come from a tradition where an individual within the church or an individual within a denominational structure or a very small group of people within that structure make all the decisions and they cannot be questioned. And others of you come from from kind of the, the flop opposite experience of that, which is a tradition where everything is done by vote, usually after a contentious church business meeting. But I would argue that the the way that we see things laid out in Scripture is that the church is to be led by qualified men who are devoting themselves to the study of the Word, to devotion in prayer, following the Holy Spirit's leading as they interact with the congregation, not divorced from it. The membership as a whole, that is all church members together, possess God-given authority to lead and govern and protect themselves, but the church is not without its leaders. God himself has has called qualified men to guide the direction of the church. And not only do they lead the flock, do they set the direction, but they also feed the flock. In fact, depending on the translation of the Bible that you have in front of you, your translation may actually say that the calling of the elders is to feed the flock. They lead the sheep to where the food is. That's why Paul, in the book of Titus, writes that the elders are to be able to teach, to declare good news, to debunk falsehood. And the expectation is that while you are being fed, in moments just like this, where the Word of God is being opened and and taught and explained to you, that in that very same process, you are also learning how to feed yourself. That your spiritual growth is not just by proxy that you're not living off the spiritual experience of somebody else, but that you're learning what it is to feed and train and nourish yourself as you get into the Word. It's part of the reason that we work through the Bible the way that we do and why we talk about things like context and interpretation. Not because it's a lecture or not because this is a seminary, but because part and parcel of what it is to be a believer of Jesus Christ and to be a follower of Christ is to be able to be in his word and learn and understand for yourself as the Holy Spirit illuminates the living word of God in your own life. Because scripture, not elders, are the ultimate authority. And then he continues, exercising oversight. Now, how are they to exercise this oversight? not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, this instruction is interesting, but it makes all the sense in the world within the context of 1 Peter. Here's what he's saying to elders. He's saying this, elders, don't lead out of a sense of compulsion. If you're pastoring the church out of a sense of obligatory burden, 
where there's a resentment to the work that you're doing, where you'd rather be doing anything else, but either by virtue of your experience or lack thereof, or some sense of obligation outside of God's calling, you feel that this is the only job and responsibility you have, you are missing the call that God has given you. And that truth is easy for our mindsets to, for, and rather it's easy for that mindset to slip in. It's easy for pastors to view their role the same way we might view any other job. I got to roll out of bed. I got to show up here at this time. I got to do this work. I got to show up and talk to these people and, and to do it out of a sense of personal obligation or maybe self-inflicted obligation that is completely divorced from the calling that God has given, for, given us. And the reason for that is, is far-reaching, but I think there's at least a couple primary ones. First is this, ministry itself can become an idol for pastors. And I say that as a pastor with an idolatrous heart. Ministry itself can become an idol. It's easy to begin to find your worth in your job. It's easy for this to become some sort of spiritual sacrifice that is man-made and not God-pleasing. This is how I'm going to show my sincerity to God. This is, going to how, this is going to be how I show my appreciation to God. I'm going to do this for him. And in doing this spiritual work, I am going to make myself acceptable to God. It becomes a legalistic pursuit. This is how I earn my keep as a Christian. And for other pastors, it's a completely different temptation. Well, this is what I've always done, and if I don't do it, who else will? And so elders, pastors, can begin to operate out of a sense of compulsion. And I'm preaching to myself even as I say this, but, but understand that Peter's instruction implicitly here is this. If that's the sense that a pastor has, he needs to take a step back. As I was reading this this week, my mind uh, immediately flipped to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 because the language that's used in this text by Peter is reminiscent of Paul's language in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 where he's talking about giving. And if you remember that text, here's what it says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here's the reason I mention that. There's this theme that you see pop its way up all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament in particular, which is that, to quote one pastor, God is not after your begrudging submission. He's not looking for you to knuckle under and resentfully comply with the instruction that he's given. If you're doing that, you're actually missing the point of the instruction, the purpose behind the instruction that God has given you. It's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And when the yoke of the Christian life or the yoke of Christian ministry, in this case for pastors, becomes a heavy obligation or becomes unwilling compulsion, it's usually a sign that your identity is beginning to shift to the wrong thing. Or you're trying to add responsibility to yourself that the Lord hasn't given you. And here's how that often looks for pastors. I talk to pastors all the time who feel a sense, I think, born from the right place in their hearts to change other people. 
Meaning, their desire is to see spiritual change, progress, growth, development, maturity in other believers. And that's a good thing to desire for others, but the realization for the pastor has to be, God has not given you the call or the ability to change other people. Only He can do that. And when pastors begin to try to take on that burden and that responsibility for themselves, they are beginning to add a weight and a burden to ministry that God has not asked them to carry. And the end of that pathway, the end of that burden is frustration and burnout. You cannot continue on that way. The other temptation is for pastors to do this in their own power. So you devote yourselves to study and you try to figure out what you're going to say and you try to word it just so and thinking, man, if I can structure my sermon in such a way or give just the right bit of counsel to just the right person, I'm going to be able to help. I'm going to be able to transform. I'm going to be able to do these things for other people. All the while neglecting your first responsibility, which is to be in communion and relationship with God, that you are first and foremost a son in the eyes of God, not an employee. And so if we were to read Paul's principle from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 back into Peter's instruction here, it's almost as if Peter is saying, God loves a cheerful pastor. One who recognizes his own limitations, his own personal inability, his own personal dependence on the only one who can actually affect change in his heart or anyone else's. And remembering the context of persecution, there is an even darker reminder that sits underneath this instruction that elders are not to lead out of compulsion because historically and understandably, as the church has begun to experience persecution, its leaders have been the most obvious targets. And whether you go back and read through Josephus or Fox's Book of Martyrs or you look at the lives of people like Martin Luther or or countless others, what you discover is that people who cling to the truth and the authority and the clarity and the the perfection of Scripture as the only standard for the way that we are to live and the only standard for what it is we are to believe, inevitably you will become a target. As we all will, but that warning exists in particular for pastors. And as he continues, Peter says, and I want you to do this, not only not under compulsion and willingly, but I want you to do this, not, I want you to do this eagerly and not for shameful gain. See, for the elder, for the pastor, the satisfaction ought, not be, ought to be rather in the serving, the living God by caring for God's people, but far too often it's in the applause and praise of individuals. So let me just tell you honestly um, an experience that I had just a few weeks ago. Uh, Over the course of two separate weekends, I had, I think, four different people come up to me and say almost exactly the same thing, which is this. They came up to me and said, hey, it occurred to me um, today that I haven't really asked you how you're doing and how I can be praying for you. What can I be praying for you about in your life? And I can't tell you, and I say this not to puff anybody up, but just to tell you the personal encouragement it was to me, and I know I speak for Dave as well when he's had conversations that are very similar to this. I can't tell you the level of encouragement it is to know that there are people within this church who care for me and love me and love my family to the point where they would ask me how things are going so that they can pray for me. And encouragement to a pastor is a gift. It really is a gift. 
but adulation is a curse. And there can be a tendency for a cult of personality to develop around some pastors. And pastors, just like anybody else, are very prone to loving adulation and affirmation and praise and glory. It's part of the reason why I love, by the way, the example that we have in Scripture of church leaders. Because if you were just to look at the church or talk to people within the church in a modern context, you you would get the sense that there is such an expectation around what pastors are supposed to be and who they're supposed to be and how they're to live that almost nobody could live up to that expectation. And with the expectations that some people in churches put around pastors, I would argue that many of the apostles themselves wouldn't be qualified to minister. And here's what I mean. Look at Peter himself, the author of this book. Peter, during the course of his ministry as a pastor of the Christian church, has to be called out by another apostle because of his mistreatment and his prejudicial treatment against Gentiles in the church. He has a church gathering, and he says to the Jews that are gathered, why don't you come over here and sit with me, and we'll dine together, and we'll spend time together, and you'll be my inner circle. But these Gentile believers over there, we really want nothing to do with them. And I'm I'm glad that God loves them, and I'm glad that they have some sort of salvation, but we all kind of realize they're second-class Christians. And Paul, who calls out Peter properly for that inappropriate treatment within the church, gives his own confession in Romans chapter 7. As a believing Christian, as an author of a third of the New Testament, what he says in Romans chapter 7 is, there are all these things in my Christian life that I'm called to do, and you know what? I don't do them. And there's all these things in my Christian life that I'm told I'm not supposed to do, and you know what? I find myself doing them. And I try to live under grace, but I find myself being a slave to the law. And if that was on a resume, how many churches would hire Paul as a pastor? None. None churches. But remember how Paul ends that text. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the truth is broken people, truly broken people, make good pastors because they understand where true help lies. And pastors get themselves in trouble when we stop pointing to the Savior and instead get a Savior complex. So look how these elders are supposed to lead, beginning in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. See, though pastors have a God-given authority in the church, they are explicitly called not to use their position, not to use their role or their office as a bully pulpit to force their own will or bludgeon the congregation. And that can be tempting for a lot of pastors because think about the people who typically become pastors. At the very least, there's somebody who's comfortable getting up in front of a group of people and talking for 40 minutes or more. 
But notice what Paul gi- or rather Peter gives as a counterexample to that. He says, don't domineer over those in your charge. Don't use your position to bludgeon other people or hold your authority over people's heads or mistreat people or abuse people or, or enrich yourself, but rather be an example to the flock. And it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, when he says this, be imitators, as, uh, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, even, even in following the example of Paul, Paul's point was, I'm just following Jesus. That to the extent that you're following me and I'm doing a good job and setting a good example, understand that at the very least, I'm doing a poor imitation of my Savior. And that in the moments when I, as a pastor, fail, I am just as much in need of the grace of God and just as much in need to run to my Savior as anybody else. And so even in my failure, imitate me, not in the failure itself, but in the realization that in the midst of that failure, what I need to cling to is Jesus alone. And it's part of the reason that you'll hear us confess our own struggles from time to time, not because this is cheap therapy, but because part of being an example is admitting your own need for a Savior, of admitting your own weaknesses and your own shortcomings and your own your own discouragements and doubts. And why do we do all of this? Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why are elders to do all of this? For the sake of the chief shepherd who gave himself for his people. See, the goal of the elder, the under-shepherd, the pastor, is to lead and protect and feed the congregation so that they may better know the great shepherd. That's the whole job. Boiled down, that's it. That through this, you would know your Savior better. That through the imperfect but grace-dependent example of local church pastors, the people may say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he addresses the church in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There's a call here to the church to follow the example and the instruction of the elders, to have a healthy recognition of the role of the leadership and responsibility of the elders, but always with an eye to Jesus as the chief shepherd. Because listen, pastors will fail you. And if we haven't yet, we will. And your hope cannot be in us. And it can't be in influential Christian leaders. And it can't be in influential Christian authors. Though all of those things can be a gift to the church, your hope cannot reside with them. They were not intended to bear the weight of that kind of burden. And they will fail underneath it. But you know who never will? The great shepherd. That's why the instruction is given in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying to the extent the pastors are doing what they ought to be doing and giving watch over your souls, understand that there is a day coming where the under shepherds will answer to the chief shepherd for the way that the sheep were treated. That's a big responsibility. It's a heavy one. 
Therefore, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them so that they can do this work with joy. Now, that doesn't mean the pastors are to run roughshod over the congregation or that they never get, to get, never get to be questioned or challenged, but what it means is that there is a level of responsibility and leadership that has been granted by God himself and a level of accountability that comes along with that for which they will have to answer to Jesus Christ himself. Do you see the beauty of how God has constructed this? The interdependence of all of this? It's a beautiful system when the church observes it. And finally, he ends with this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, and notice this instruction is to everyone, elders, pastors, and everybody, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now that instruction is repeated in the book of James. It comes from Proverbs chapter three, but here's the question. Do all of us, as brothers or sisters, have humility in our interactions with one another? Are we all marked by that kind of humility? Do we treat one another as we would desire to be treated? Do we put the needs of one another before our own preferences? Because the dual teaching that Peter quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 is profound. That God himself actively works to foil the proud but he has infinite grace to meet you in your need. See, pride is the greatest trap because while it feels great in the moment, it invites the correction of God himself. And in the backward, upside-down economy of God, the beauty and the wonder is that when you find yourself humbled, realizing the depth of your own depravity and your own need of grace, it is in that moment where there is infinite grace available to you. So let me close with this. The church in America, and certainly broader than America, but certainly the church in America needs brave men and women. The church needs brave men and women who are willing to be used of God in whatever way he might lead. It needs brave men and women to recognize the call of Scripture, to be ambassadors, to be ministers of reconciliation, to be declarers and proclaimers of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in particular, with this text in mind and the instruction to elders, I want to extend a very specific call to the men here this morning, which is this. The church in America is in desperate need of men. And I say that not to the exclusion of women, or certainly hoping that it doesn't sound exclusionary to women, but to say this, we need men who are willing to boldly stand for the truth of God's word. Men who sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church. Men who tenderly lead their families, men who work hard in their communities, in their churches, men who humbly serve and love God's people. The church needs men to be elders who love the word of God and love the people of God because to quote one author, God only uses broken people because broken people are all that there are. So the church doesn't need perfect men. 
It needs broken men who are profoundly aware of their utter dependence on the grace of God because it is those kinds of men who grow in their ability to graciously and tenderly care for the hurting and the struggling and the failing people around them, even as they ferociously hold fast to the word of God. The church needs men who are tough and tender. This church needs men like that. And our prayer is that God would raise up men from within this congregation who love and shepherd those around them and that in doing so, the church would then recognize, train, and place those men as elders. And by the way, men, if you hear that and immediately think, well, he's not talking to me because he doesn't know my background and he knows the better, he, I don't know the Bible as well as some of these other men, or I, 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 he's talking to people who struggle less than I do or who have a better pedigree than I have or have their lives more together than I do. No, I'm talking to you, specifically to you. And listen, this is not an easy call to hear. And the days ahead may very well grow darker and harder for God's people which intensifies the need for this sort of leadership within the church all the more. To spread the weight and the responsibility. To care for the sheep, the flock among us. And the reminder in all of that is that as we follow the great shepherd, he has walked through infinitely darker and harder places than we have. And yet he did so with confidence. Because Jesus himself, in John chapter 16, as he's giving his final instruction to the disciples, said this, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour comes, yes, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And Peter, in this text, is writing to the very people who were the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in John chapter 16. Scattered, scared, hurting, intimidated, doubting. Is Jesus worth it? And the answer comes back from Jesus, absolutely. Because you are not alone. I've given you the church and I've given you my spirit and the Father himself is with you. And so, brothers and sisters, may we as his church be reminded of the living hope that we've been given. And would we carry that same message to a world that is desperately in need of hearing it? Not because we've arrived and we have it all figured out, but because we are the first recipients of that grace. Because in God's sovereign love and pursuit, he chose to use broken vessels to carry a perfect gospel to a hurting world. Let's be faithful with this call. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it challenges us, for the way it challenges me. God, we're humbled that you would choose to use any of us. And God, I thank you that you can use us. 
because there are so many moments in our lives where we feel like it must be an impossible thing to use someone as broken as we might be. And yet, God, the reminder is that we don't need perfect messengers because we have a perfect message. And so to the extent, God, that we are called to live these things out, may we live them in complete dependence on you. Would we be examples to those around us, even examples of how we handle our own failure? Would we turn to you? Would we proclaim your grace and your glory all the more? God, would you raise up men and women within this church to be brave messengers of the gospel in the face of a world that may not want to hear it and may even decry it? Would we faithfully and lovingly and boldly proclaim the message of your word? And God, would you raise up men from within this church to be shepherds of the flock, to pastor and to care for the hurting around them, to bind up the wounded, to declare the freeing nature of the gospel to those who are entwined in sin. And God, in all of that, would we make much of the chief shepherd so that we would receive the unfading crown of glory which we receive only so that we can cast it at your feet. God, it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.